in case you missed it on Newsbreak. Celebrating 160 years of Indians in South Africa. First of November, so it's time to build up to the 16th of November, which marks 160 years since the arrival of Indians to South Africa. A very warm welcome to the program. It's our official kickstart here on Newsbreak Talk of our 1860 focus uh, for the coming two weeks. And we look forward to spending some nostalgic time talking about this great contribution of Indians to South Africa. And um, it's, it's definitely a topic that gets you very excited gets you very happy so we look forward to sharing in that conversation with you that narrative with you and um, I think as always I look forward to hearing your stories and your recollections of it so yeah I think we're going to have a pretty interesting time going forward we are going to be focusing on a lot of this so um, let's let's go ahead let's talk about it and I'm starting the conversation on a very uh, interesting note because what has fascinated me all these years about um about the 1860 story and I think we've spoken about a lot of avenues of it of commemoration of memory of struggle of strife of 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 success of coming through as slaves but emerging as captains of industry and you know, we've done that conversation and I think we are still going to revisit it because they're very important and powerful conversations to to revisit and to look at but what's always struck me is how did India come here? And I know the answer is, and everybody at home is going to be like, well, duh, they came by a ship. But that's not what I mean. I mean, how did, how did, you know, how did we get Jira over here? You know, how did we get Karela over here? Um, and again, I know they came by a ship, but, but, but how d were these things that were not available from a habit, from a habitat perspective, right? How were they created here? How were they cultivated here? Um, and, 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 and those are physical things, which of course, you know, the Indians would have brought and they would have sent. And there were so many other trips and travels that came through passenger Indians as well, traders and all of that. And, and definitely, you know, this is what was thought of at the time. But things like culture, you know, religious practices. How did one... In 1860, know how to make barfi in South Africa. So it's those kinds of things that I've always wondered about, you know. Um, and, and, and specifically, and, and specifically if you've been to India, and you'll know that a lot of the practice, a lot of the tradition is so different from what we do here in South Africa. Um, and the food is exceptionally different. So if that is the, you know, the source of Indian culture, lifestyle, food, cuisine, and it's different compared to what we call Indian um, heritage, culture, lifestyle, cuisine in Durban or in South Africa. What journey did that go through, that transformative journey? And in 1860, how did they work with what they had? So, yeah, it's a bit of an interesting one. 
but uh, definitely something that I think we should be focusing our time on that we should be looking at. I'm going to be joined in a short while by Dr. Raj Govinda. He needs no introduction, a cultural historian who's done so much of work um, and research in this topic. So he's going to be talking to me about it. But I've also done some pretty interesting interviews that I want to take you through. And I think we'll be able to, um, you know, understand what I'm the point I'm trying to make a little bit better. Example, how did in 1860... How did one create a a a a, a darga? How did one create a a mandir, a sthapan for prayer? You know, so that's always fascinated me, and I still actually don't know how to put it into a sentence. I apologize here if I'm talking to you in, in circles because I'm trying to rationalize that. Obviously, it's not something I've spent copious amounts of times researching empirically myself. So um, I'd also like to know from you, and you can go ahead and text me um, your thoughts on how these things were transported to South Africa, how these cultures were imbibed in South Africa, specifically in the early 18. Um, 1860s, um, how did this this function? So the Sapingo Mariman Temple was established in 1870 by Narayan Sami Murli, an Indian indentured labourer who carried a Mariman Murti with him in his journey from India to South Africa. Now when the sugar barons noticed the large numbers of devotees that would gather on the banks of the river, they allocated land to Murli to build the temple. Since then, the annual trek of the popular Easter prayer attracts thousands of devotees from around the world. In this week's 1860 feature, Rachel spoke to Narayan Sami's great-grandson, Sugen Mudli. The Isapingo Mariaman Temple was established in the 1870s. The Murti, Mariaman Murti, was brought onto the shores of Natal from South India by Narayan Sami Murti. The Mother Mariaman was situated adjacent to the riverbanks of the Amlas River Canal. You see, at that time, there wasn't an area where the Indian should laborers could utilize in terms of prayer. So what they had to do at that time each evening was that thousands of devotees would then go to the riverbanks and bathe in these rivers after working in the sugarcane fields. And they would then pay homage to the Mother Mariaman. The Murti was actually in, in an area where the reeds were closing in so that nobody could see what they were doing with regards to their prayer. So that it was actually tucked into the reeds. So each night they would actually go into this, the riverbank and they would put all these grassroots down and, and do their prayers. And then they would all leave to their homes. It was then decided by Dicking to allocate a piece of land to Narayan Sami Mudli to build a temple so that the crowds would be a little bit more organized. Because what was happening at that time, a lot of the white owners of these sugar estates were seeing these thousands of people going and queuing up around that area. And because of the number of people that were queuing up to do the prayer, Dicking then came in. And he be, uh, at that time, he was a mutual friend to the Indian uh, indentured laborers. It was then established that uh, a piece of land uh, would then be built for the temple in Isapingo. At that time in history, uh, Rachel, there was no other temples that were built. Hence, the congregations that were gathering at the Isapingo area were massive. As time passed, there were other temples that were built throughout Natal. But this did not stop all the Hindus from partaking and convening at the uh, Isapingo temple.
What a rich history. Now, you mentioned that the temple was established in 1870 and Correct. the first murti was already there. So are we to assume that the Indian indentured laborers brought the first murti with them on the boats to Natal? Correct. All we are given to understand is that the murti came in from a temple in India. So that was the only thing that they could bring and come with them as great worship. My great-grandfather brought the murti and came in his veil on the boat to Natal. That was the only piece of stuff that they brought and came in. So in terms of where the, uh, the murti came, we're given to understand there's a lot of history around this mother because we're given to understand that the mother and the certain parts of the people that came in from, from South India all came from a place called Samyapuram. So a lot of the rich heritage that came in from there came from these types of areas. And uh, the types of people and the, the dynasty and the lineages of these people that came in from these areas will say a lot about how the Hindu faith prays these days. You know, there's lots of people that have different methods of praying and how they pray. But ultimately, uh, at that time, everybody had one common belief and one common system that they utilized. So you were saying that he carried it on his person, he wasn't able to carry any other things, or did he carry anything else? No, he didn't carry anything else. The only thing he brought and came with him is not even clothes. He brought the murti. Why do you think it was so important for him to bring that murti? You see, um, Rachel, I'm given to understand, and when I visited India, I'm given to understand that the lifestyle there is very simple. The simplicity on its own will tell you about the type of people there that reside in that area. And in, the, in that day and age, culture was very, very high. It was, uh, it, was, it was a very extraordinary belief. For them, their rich culture and heritage was religion. And that's one of the things I think that he cherished, because at the time he came in with this pride that prayers were done. And he was obviously associated with a whole host of people, because there was a multitude of people that built and carved this temple. As a matter of fact, there was a whole host of indentured laborers that actually hand-painted all the portraits inside the temple. And we're able to see that every single painting is like a normal picture that you buy from a shop of a deity. And that painting has the person's signature at the bottom and the year that they painted it. It's absolutely amazing because the type of information that is there is a rich heritage of our Hinduism faith. Wow, and that was um, and the um, Narayan Sami's great grandson, uh, grandson Sugen Mudli, talking there about how his uh, great grandfather um, carried a Mariaman statue or murti with him on his journey to South Africa, um, and this is how they, you know, created that Isipingo temple, which has got such a rich heritage. But again, I ask you, and maybe now you can understand it. So they brought the murti with them. They brought the, you know, um, um, yeah, they, they brought the uh, statue of the deity with them. How were they able to do those prayers? This elaborate, beautiful Indian temple that you see now, and there's so many... Um, things that are needed for an Indian prayer, whether it is um, bitter leaf and bitter nut, or whether it is marigold flowers, you know, was that readily available here? And how did that come through? How did they, you know, have the tools and the utensils needed um, to do the kinds of worship that 
we see now. So that's always been a fascinating point, and I'm going to be talking to Dr. Raj Govinda about it. He's a cultural historian who's joining me on the line. Dr. Govinda, welcome. Thanks so much for your time. Welcome to you, and welcome to the listeners. So, um, as you heard that interview there about the Spingomadiman Temple, and of course we're going to go through various sectors of it. You know, we're also going to look at how Islam made its way to South Africa, and we're also going to look at uh, briefly touch on the issue of how uh, food made its way to South Africa and adapted. So, you know, th- this is basically the focus of our conversation. But when you hear of how this murti was transported uh, in 1860, um, you know. What's your understanding of the way Indian culture was consecrated in South Africa during a time when there was no Indian culture here? Okay, I think it will be very, very appropriate for me to extend the discussion on what was just said. Because a few years ago, when I decided to find my ancestral roots it took me to a village in India called Siruvallur in a town called Polur in the North Arcot district uh, in India. So when I went there and I found my grandparents standing, because my grandparents came here in 1890 somewhat, in one of those years. Uh, he was Tirubengada Pele and my grandmother was Beliyama Pele. So they came from this village. So when I went and I found that village there and my grandfather settled down in a place called Malagazi in Isipingo where I was born. And when I went to Tirubalur, I was amazed because the temple that that village worshipped was a Vishnu temple, a Perumal Sami temple. The exact replica of the temple is in Ispingo, in the industrial area in Spingo, where it still exists today. Wow. So it is, it is clear that my grandparents or my grandfather was very involved in the temple in Siravalur. So when he came here, it was natural for him to bring that entire memory that was lodged in his mind to establish a similar temple here in Ispingo. So, so that is very, very, very important for us to understand that the people, when they left India, the, our ancestral uh, our forefathers, when they left India, they brought with them their memories, their oral traditions, which was very, very pivotal for them to survive in, a new, in the new country of their adoption. Because this, the one very important thing that we must understand is that when these indentured laborers left the shores of India. They did not come masses from one particular village. They came in small numbers. So maybe one or two people from Siruvalur, another two persons from another village and so on. So they brought to them that uh, knowledge. But when they uh, traveled on the ship, on those very, very ship, uh, uh, traumatic journey, uh, 30-day journey, they shared with them experiences and so on. So when they settled down in different parts of KwaZulu-Natal, they established their temples, they established their cultural norms, they, they brought to them cuisine, and they did not bring and block their culture. They intermingled here, and there was a sort of sharing of ideas and so on. And what emerged from my both my master's and PhD research is that they 
they evolved a new cultural identity. Mm. Wonderful. And Dr. Kamda, I'm going to stop you right there because it is just so magnificent to hear the things that you're saying and I want to expand on it. But I want to ask you, and you said to me specifically with, you know, your your, your great-grandfather there and uh, his that vision of that um, Narayan temple that he then, you know, built in Malagasy. Memory is one thing. Tradition is one thing. Having it innate within you is one thing. But the tools to actually create it, um, the, 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 the utensils to actually do a, a prayer like that, to set up a, an altar like that, I mean, that wasn't available. So how do they do that? No, there was lots of people that came from India, like Kistapa Reddy and various other people that were temple architects that came on these ships. They came and they were responsible. And if you go to the 1860 Heritage Center, you'll find lots of information uh, that are documented there of all the temples that were built in different parts of KwaZulu-Natal where they had skilled architects, temple sculptures that came here and they uh, contributed towards the evolution of these temples based on their knowledge of India, Indian temple architecture. So uh, lots of uh, very, very interesting studies have been undertaken by academics on this particular basis. So so you find that Kistapa Reddy is one, there's plenty other architects that came and they added value to the uh, religious landscape in KwaZulu-Natal. So based on that, and my grandfather was a chef. So obviously his expertise was being a chef. So his uh, knowledge was to contribute towards the cuisine development in South Africa. But people like Kistapa Reddy and other people were temple architects, architectures and sculptures. So there were expertise that, were, that came. So apart from the people that came as indentured laborers to work on a sugarcane plantation, uh, they, they went back and they, 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 uh, they recruited uh, skilled people in various other aspects. They brought Bhatias with them. Right, which is Tamil teachers. They, uh, because they wanted their children to learn the Tamil language and culture and so on, um, so our indentured laborer uh, forefathers uh, felt that, that you know, we, we must not be selfish because we are illiterate. Our children need to learn. So they established schools because that day, uh, those days the government of the day did not provide schools and so on. So they yeah, and I was schools. just going to ask Dr. Governor, was it allowed then? I mean, like you saying, you know, the, with the subsequent trips that happened, you know, post um, 1860, yes. and then this need, the community realized we need this, we need that, we need architects, we need chefs, and. Um, was that allowed? Because what yes. a clamp down then. I mean, these were ult- ultimately slaves, right? So yes. how much of um, say did they have as to, you know, who they wanted to bring, etc.? So w- what sort of allowance was allowed for them yes, to decide they they very these people to come through? Yes, our, the indentured laborers were very, very determined. They had subsequent meetings with the, um, you know, uh, uh, Indian representatives in South Africa uh, from India, uh, they had uh, uh, extensive meetings that they had with local authorities and so on that they wanted their children to learn. They wanted the children to be uh, given uh, knowledge on the culture, the religion, the music, dance and so on. So they were allowed with the, all those meetings that were held uh, um, and the government of the day realized that in order for the workers to be 
uh, made happy in order for the workers here, they need to satisfy their cultural, education and religious needs. So the authorities of those days, uh, you know, uh, uh, acceded to the request of bringing the temple, uh, sorry, the architects, they were acceded to bringing uh, experts in education, in culture, music, dance and so on. So uh, apart from only the indentured laborers, you had these specialized skilled people that were also brought here to assist. Because if you satisfy the indentured laborer, and if they are happy that their, their cultural, religious, and education needs are met, then you're going to get a good set of workers. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I understand that concept, but my brain immediately went through to this. The more knowledge you give this community, the more power you give them, and these slaves should not be powerful. Um, I, I wonder if, they, if the uh, you know, colonial oppressors thought that. But Dr. Governor, thank you so much for explaining that entire pertinent part as to the back and forth journey and, uh, and the call and the need and the meeting for uh, these skills to come through to South Africa. But come, let's come back to that, to, to back on the ship. And that, that I found particularly interesting. Um, this intermerging of villages and, and cultural practices on the ship that kind of merged into cultural practices that exist yes. today. Because yes. um, if you look at it within, a, and I'll just give you know a, a general example, um, a, a lot of communities, a lot of households, don't observe something like in the North Indian tradition. Don't observe something like Karvachauth, for example, which is so prominent and big um, mm. in India. So, mm. how then was this intermixing of of, of um, cultures able to create a religious culture in South Africa? Yeah. So when I studied, uh, when I researched for my PhD and masters, which was uh, the rituals and practices of uh, South African people of Indian origin, I had to go to India in order to see whether there were changes, because what is being practiced in South Africa is it the same in India. And when I went back to India to uh, research that, I found that there has been a tremendous amount of changes. Uh, because when the people came here, as I mentioned earlier on, they were in small numbers. So they they took common practices between different villages because each village, they worshipped Grandma Devas, which is Grandma means village, uh, Devas means deities. So each village, they will, they will pray to a specific deity. So when they came here, they merged and they, they, they intermingled with each other and they created shrines where they put together uh, worship practices of different villages into one. So when you talk about the Spingo Temple or the Mandishkum Temple, for example, it is a emergence of a number of ritualistic practices from different villages that created a totally unique South African religious worship. That's what I found very, very strong in my research of uh, practices in South Africa. Now, the same thing happened with cuisine. And, and, and one thing the listeners um, uh, should know is that the South African Indian cuisine, the curry that we have here, you will not find anywhere in India because it is assumed a totally South African flavor. The food that, that is very much Indian is what you will get in some of the restaurants here that have Indian cooks that have been imported to come and cook. But in a typical Indian home in South Africa, you find the cuisine somewhat different. And, and that's what I miss most when I go to India. I cannot stay long enough 
because I miss the <laughs> South African Indian food. And, and, and that's why it's because people have intermingled, they've, they've shared their spices, they've shared their recipes and so on. But one very important thing that we are so lucky that was not brought here and it was discarded is the caste system, yeah, which is yeah. so prevalent. Explain that to me because I wonder then if... And I've always wondered this, was it then, was the, the reason for that because there was specifically one caste only selected to come through to South Africa? Or was it just a common human spirit that, you know, converged during the struggle um, that resulted in them not seeing each other as any different from each other? Yes, the, it is a one common human spirit because you know why? Different villages, you find caste very predominant. For example, um, uh, when we went to my village in Siruvallur in India, the Yadavar caste is the predominant caste, which is Yadavas, with cow herders, right? Uh, Krishna devotees and cow herders. That's the Yadava caste. So if I had to bring, if I had to follow, my grandfather never uh, perpetuated that here. So therefore, we never followed the Yadava caste. I, I married, for example, uh, Andhra girl. You know what I mean? Uh, that was unheard of uh, in India. You you only marry within your caste. Now that's why I said earlier on we we they discarded that caste system because. In each village, they have different castes. So if they had to bring uh, the caste here, they would not be able to marry and so on because there was too little people in similar caste for people to marry. So that's why people were, uh, you know, uh, uh, by discarding the caste, they were able to marry people of different castes and so on. And South Africa now emerged as a South African people of Indian origin without any caste uh, tag on them. So that's what happened. Uh, because, uh, yes, you would be quite correct and you say, if they were recruited, everybody was recruited from North Arcot District, for example, in Tamil Nadu. Then you bring that entire caste system to South Africa and up till today we would have been practicing a caste. Uh, uh, you know, type of uh, mentality. So that is something that was very good that they discarded and, and therefore people could marry uh, across uh, caste uh, boundaries and also linguistic boundaries. That, that's why you find Tamils uh, marrying Telugu's or Hindi or whatever. It's because they discarded that whole ideology. And that is something that we could be very proud of because up till today you go to India, you still find when they find marriage uh, partners for everybody, they'll first look at what caste uh, they belong to, yeah, and that is yeah, so sad. Yeah. Well, I think we're very grateful for that. Else, we wouldn't have um, Nirmala Ma'am as uh, you know married <laughs> into the family. So we're very thankful for that, Doctor Kalu. But so much of uh, insight and so much to talk about. I'd love to invite you onto WhatsApp now to please send me your thoughts, your messages, your um, voice notes. Um, the focus we are you know, putting forward here is the evolution of, I think, as Dr. Govinder has explained it to us, it takes a new form now, now that we're actually talking about it, the evolution then of the Indian culture and the Indian traditions and practices into South Africa during that um, early 1900s and late, you know, 1860s. How did it come? How did it literally transport itself here? And how did it become a conducive um, authentically South African Indian culture. I'd love to know your thoughts about it. Let's say hello to Selvin. 
Well, Teresh, I, Teresh, and your last speaker, I agree with him 100% about the Indian food and its cuisines. When I went to London, I reckoned to my wife, hey, how are we going to get Indian food here? Believe you me, there's more Indian restaurants in London than here. And uh, I just want to say, while England went right from the world colonializing the rest of the world, India colonialized England without going there. So I'm proud of the Indians. I was just reading the 1860 settlers last year by the late Dr. T.P. Naidu. I'm very impressed. We are a surviving nation all around, religiously, spiritually, uh, cuisine-wise, you name it, yoga, philosophy. Oh, the Lord has been wonderful to us. I'm so proud to be an Indian. Thanks, Taresh. I love all of you all. We love you too, and thanks so much. I think it's it's good to know that you're enjoying the conversation. Um, uh, Selvan, yeah, curry, hey, it seems people can't do without this dub and curry. <laughs> it's a thing on its own, isn't it? Uh, text message from Ramba Mudli says, Good afternoon. Every time I listen to all the information about our Indian sectors, it makes me very happy. Uh, news information always. Thanks to Lotus. Zahir Danbar of Phoenix says, In a place named Glendale, plus minus 45 minutes past Stanga, is a primary school, uh, primary school named... Um, Parakabad School in Glendale. It is built by all religions on sugarcane farmers in 1947 by Mr. Um, as Mr. Ramraj's concern and worry for education had him donate his land for the school to be built and residents educated. The goal of sugarcane farmers and workers was education. How wonderful that he would... Um, how wonderful that he would do that for the sake of education, you know, um, trans donate his land like that. Uh, this is from, I think, Vijay in Stanger. Uh, the caste was still practiced in South Africa after indenture. I still hear it today. So, yeah, that's what Vijay is saying, that caste was still pract uh, practiced in um, um, uh, South Africa. I, I wonder, you know, and I think uh, before I go to my next interview, Dr. Governor, difference between an actual practicing of the caste system versus practicing of socio-economic um, imbalances, because if you look at it, even though there's no caste system in South Africa, but the issue of socio-economic imbalances result in people being treated differently. I mean, if you look at COVID-19, for example. So uh, from that perspective, was there still a distinction between the haves and the have-nots back in 1860? where the indentured laborers, you know, the workers in the in the farms were treated less than perhaps the uh, trade or passenger Indians. I've often heard that sort of argument and narrative. Yeah, no, no. That narrative was always there because the traders that came, they came here, they were a bit more affluent than the indentured laborers were ordinary menial laborers that were working on a farm. So that, that but you know what? All societies have that. The economic, the socio-economic status of a person always puts you in a certain silo or in a certain compartment. That is, uh, uh, you know, from an orality uh, history point of view, from an anthropological point of view, that is a, a, a situation that is found in all societies, not only in the society of the Indians, it's found in a typical African society, in the continent of Africa, in India, in Everywhere, that that is something that is very very difficult to discard. You know where people class themselves because of socio-economic status. Um, but one very interesting thing that was just mentioned by you now, and I think one of the callers about the school. Yes, the Indian indentured laborers. 
despite the meaningless uh, wages that they received, what they did is they took their money. They collected money from all their families and they established schools, right? They established classrooms where the children could be taught and when they brought the Tamil teachers, Hindi teachers and so on to teach the children. Up till today, we can be so proud of our forefathers because despite the fact that they were illiterate, they made sure that the children learned. So today, in all realms of society, whether in the scientific, whether in the medical, economic, educational, legal fraternity, the Indians are playing a pivotal role. It's all because of the strong foundations and the seeds that were planted by these indentured laborers who were unselfish and they made sure that we learn. And, and you know what they also did? They, they donated land, like you said. You'll find in Inanda, like uh, the Munsemi School, right, was donated by the Munsemi family. Then we can even think about uh, in the educational fraternity, ML Sultan, where he donated so much of money to establish the ML Sultan Technicon, which is now DUT. Then RK Khan, for example, he donated land for the building of a hospital that is named after him in Chatsworth. So they were unselfish. They were not waiting for handouts. Later on, the government of the day was yeah. guilty. They were guilty and they felt that these people are doing so much. So let's rather pay. So you had state-aided schools where the schools were built by the community and the state paid for the teachers yeah, and so on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think we're going to move on to some interviews now before time escapes us, as it always does when we have these conversations. So we've, we're talking, we started talking about the Mariman Temple in Isupingo. Uh, how did Islam make its way to South Africa? Well, Grace Street Masjid trustee Dr. A.V. Muhammad explains the role of Hazrat Badshah Peer and Hazrat Sufi Sahib um, and the role they played in bringing Islam from India to South Africa during the late 1800s. How did Islam come to South Africa during the 1860s and the early 1900s? Because there's so much of the practice that wasn't available in South Africa at the time. I think you made a very uh, pertinent point. The most important issue in 1860 was the arrival of that saint, that great saint, Ahmed Bashapir, who is buried down in Brook Street. He was one of the first 360 passengers that arrived from Hyderabad in India in 1860. Talk to me about what lessons he carried with him. Well, you know, he came and he worked just basically, there's a difference of opinion, maybe two or three months. He worked in the, as an indentured laborer and then they found that he was doing a lot of mysterious things. So then he was released and he had the choice of going back to India or remain here at his own expense. And he decided to remain here at his own expense. And as history would say, he used to frequent himself living around the area where what is popularly known as the Grey Street Mosque, which stands today, and that property that is there, uh, which was bought only in 1880. But coincidentally or mysteriously, he used to hang around there and he used to be walking around the streets of Durban chanting the zikrah, the, the verses of the Holy Quran. But what was the turning point that he passed on around 1893 
and he died in the mosque during a Friday lunch prayer. And in 1895, that great saint was sent from India, that is Hazrat Sufi Saab, who is based in uh, Riverside. He was sent to locate the grave of Hazrat Bashapir, whose name was Ahmad Bashapir. And he then located the grave in the Brook Street Shrine, where it stands at the moment. And he built the shrine, and he then, Sufisab decided to stay here himself, and he got the land around the sugarcane area of Riverside. It is the movement of Islam can be attributed to the arrival not only of Ahmad Bashapir in 1860, but it also justifies the movement of Hazrat Sufisa from 1895, who in this country then started moving this religion of Islam in Durban and into the far corners of South Africa. Was it hard though for, I think, around that time, to have access to what one would have in India during that time to, you know, have the religion flourish. How hard was it with the limited resources to teach other South Africans and other people, even new generations of the time, the merits and the uh, practices of Islam? Well, you know, the practices of Islam uh, are basically one of humanity. And all religions teach you Humanity, we got one God, who went around converting the people to the religion of Islam, then had to accept certain rituals like the fire tramping, uh, the cowardly, you know, which was in like the form of the moron, uh, the rituals in wedding of the Tilak and Haldi party, what they call the Mendi party. So many of the similarities that exist in the Hindu custom and the Muslim custom are one linked to the other through the method that we come from uh, the, our motherland, the Indo-Pak. So all these customs and rituals were brought from India into South Africa by these people and to draw a line of similarity. What? So talking there about, I think, those two great saints, um, Hazrat Bad Shapir and Hazrat Sufi Sahib, and the, you know, recitation of Quranic verses and, and the establishment of, of that religion over there. So uh, there's so much more to still go. We still have to check in with Ms. Zulekha Mayat. Of course, amazing to speak with her after so, so long. When we come back, we continue our conversation. Four teams will bring all the heat, but only one will be crowned the champions of the MTN8. Matatanza Pitori will be looking to keep the MTN8 trophy right where it is, in Akshitville. But Zuelala won't just sit back and take a beating. Icona, they want the trophy just as bad. This is the MTN8, Baba. Catch Supersport United, battle it out with Bluefontein Celtic this Sunday, the 1st of November at 3 p.m. live on SABC1 and SABC radio stations in your language of choice. Hashtag we love it here. Brought to you by SABC Sport. For the love of the game. 
the Speaker of KwaZulu-Natal Legislature, Honorable Nontembe Boys, and members of the Legislature, invite the people of Etegwini Metro and surrounding areas to be part of the Taking Legislature to the People program, which will take place on the 3rd and 4th of November 2020 by joining the proceedings which will be streamed live on the following social media platforms. YouTube, www.kznlegislature.gov.za 2020 at TLTP, Facebook, KZN Legislature, and Twitter, KZN Legislature. This two-day sitting follows the multi-party visit by members of the legislature to various wards in Etewini Metro. The multi-party delegations met with the communities to listen to the service delivery issues, which need government intervention. A report on the multi-party visit will be presented and debated during the sitting. The sitting starts at 9 on both days. KZN Legislature, an activist people-centered legislature. Okay, we're going to go quickly to WhatsApp and then we're going to continue with uh, Dr. Dodge Governor and we're going to speak to uh, Zulekha Mayat who's going to be talking to us about food infusion. Uh, um, Sairam, to be na Ram Thari. Um, Sairam, today I'm not contributing, only listening to the beautiful talks of all the people. Proud to be a South African Indian. Pina Ramdari, thank you. Thanks so much. Let's go to Ramba. Hello, Ramba. Good afternoon, Paris. Lovely to hear your voice in this cold weather. Nice to hear about the old people that came from India. It was my grandfather, the Padavatan too. They also owned a temple in India, but I don't know the name, but I like to just come into the conversation to tell you about the Padavatan brothers, what they did. <coughs> they came back from India and they saved their lives in the Afghani flood. Yeah, in Durban. I'm so glad to hear about 1860 settlers that have arrived and coming through Radio Lotus and with the journalists from Rachel Wadi and Tarish Aripatsa, the real angels of Lotus FM. Thank you. You have a nice warm day. God bless you. We love you. It's Ramba from Woodfield. Love you too, Ramba. I got a message from Soma Gengen who says, I heard that when my great-grandfather Soman Padvatan worked in the sugarcane fields in the Isopingo area, he together with others built a small temple in Isopingo and started the Mariaman prayers there. So yeah, I think the Padvatans cannot be ignored from this, this, this particular conversation. Salim Adam now. Hello, Salim. Hi, Teresh. This is Salim Adam. What was most important when the Indians came to South Africa is they didn't discount the culture. They held very strongly, tightly you know, to the culture. They also held on to the language and the practice. When they came in here, they brought India here and they knew this is India. So the culture, practice and the religion, they held on to it and they practiced it. See if you go to Claremont, a black township, you'll find there the temple there. That temple still stands there. So the first thing they did is they built our religious institution, our temples, mosques and so on. So they held on very tightly to the culture and that's why we succeeded in holding on to our, our identity. Right. Okay, so Dr. Raj Govinda, I think more, much more for us to talk as we wrap up, but let's listen to Ms. Zulekha Mayat. I asked her about food and she shared some interesting stories about it. Um, how 
spices and vegetable made its way to South Africa. And a 95-year-old Indian Delights editor and author, Zulekha Mayat, explains how as a child, she saw seeds of bhindi and karela being brought and sent from India for planting here in South Africa. Can we start? Yes, ma'am. Right from the beginning, yeah. from India. Before the Afghans and the others came to India, India was completely vegetarian. Right from the pre-Christian times, right from the old times, it was absolutely vegetarian. Over the decades, over centuries, then slowly you saw the Afghanis, the Iranians, and the Arabs coming into India. And when they came, immediately each other's culture uh, influenced the other. Similarly, when they came to South Africa, in the trading class, in the invented class, there were 18% Muslims. What they brought, I'm not sure. I don't know, but I'm sure they must have brought things that they wanted. In the trading class, I definitely, I definitely remember when gifts came to my mother from India, beautifully wrapped in white khadi cloth. And inside was a packet with seeds, sam, broad beans, okra, binda, and so on, karela, and so on. Because these other things were not available in South Africa. So she had to get them there. And so did her friends. And then, of course, we started planting it there. And slowly, it became part of South African Indian food. It influenced the uh, other people as saying here. And we started eating their food. And the seeds of fusion already started. Do you wow. see how it always goes? Wow, wow. That's just fascinating how, how you remember that recollection of, of those <laughs> seeds coming through. But talk to me okay. then about the Durban curry because I it's very loudly. different from the curry that, you know, there was in India. So when it came to South Africa, again, started influencing each other. The Indian things, the seeds they brought and the, the ideas they brought and the methods they brought influenced the people staying here. And similarly, they were influenced by the things that were, the products that were there and the procedures of cooking that was here. Again, fusion has started. And fusion keeps on going on. When you think back about the way food has changed over these years, what? how do you criticize it? You know, the changes are so gradual that you don't sense it's changing. And you suddenly find you're doing things that they, which is, you know, quite different than what you were doing. So how the change slowly came into and crept into you, you have no idea. It's, it's not like something that's suddenly dark and night. It's very... Uh, it, it creeps in very slowly into a person. And what can you tell me about spices? I know you mentioned about the seeds, but things like jeera and storm, filaichi, how were these, how did this make its way to South Africa? The Indians who came, they wanted their jeera and they wanted their spices and they wanted the things that they wanted, which was not here. And as I told you, in the cardi bags that used to come in, the gifts that I saw, there was always these spices. 
Even garam masala means to come from there. And then slowly started, we started to making it here. Because the jira was now available and the other things were available. And I think... How did Bani Chow come in? It didn't suddenly appear on the table. You know, Cafe Tins Cafe in, in, in Grey Street, they used to have a, a little window where they could quickly serve the working people. People were working around the, uh, the street cleaners and so on. They just quickly wanted to buy something to eat quickly and get back to work. So Capitans used to get uh, pieces of bread in which they would quickly put some uh, curry and something what is left over and give it to them. Right. Now, when people started buying this very much, they said, oh, this is banya chow. You know banya? Yes. Every trading class Indian is a banya. Yes. B-A-N-I-A. Right? Yeah. So slowly, banya chow became bani chow. <laughs> yes. suddenly, but over the years, instead of banya chow, we called it bani chow. Now, when our children go away from South Africa, they want bani chow. <laughs> <laughs> the inimitable Zulekha Mayat over there talking to us about that, that journey of food and those seeds, uh, Dr. Govinder, talking about how Bindi and Karela seeds were sent through here and planted and that's how you get them so freely now. Hello? Hi, Dr. Govinder. Yes. Yes, yeah, I'm talking about the seeds that Zulekha yeah. was saying was sent through that she remembers as a kid seeing these yeah. packets of seeds that were sent through. No, definitely. And I remember very clearly uh, when I lived in uh, Malagazi, for example, uh, at my grandfather's place, there was all, and they had this olive tree that was brought, the, uh, the, the seeds were brought from India, and we call it nalikai. Uh, it's the type of uh, olive that was used in pickles and so on. So like that, people brought to them the seeds. And yesterday, in fact, we had guests that were from Bangalore, India, that came for dinner. And I was so happily talking about all the, uh, the, the greens that were brought because there are certain groups of people that came as indentured laborers that were market gardeners. And they grew the pikanka, the pavaka, the kustanikai, the podlankai, all these different types of uh, vegetables that were grown. And right up to today, because we went to Bangladesh market yesterday and we bought all those things yesterday, it's because of the market gardener concept. So there were some people that were not engaged in working in the sugarcane plantations. Their task was to plant uh, the, the greens and the, the vegetables that were needed to supply the indentured laborers. And once again, that was allowed. The, the, the government of the day allowed this to happen because at the end of the day, you needed to satisfy the workers. You needed to satisfy them. And yeah. that is why yeah. they were yeah. uh, market yeah. gardeners that were planting vegetables that were needed by the indentured laborers. Mm. I think time to wrap up, Dr. Governor, before I finish off on those WhatsApp messages. Um, and what's coming through very strongly from, I think, yourself and everybody, and even Mazula Khamaya that we're speaking with, was the change, the evolution of what India was, as it was in India on the subcontinent, and as it traveled over the seas to South Africa and established here. It's a different type of Indianism, is that correct? Yes, yes. 
Right, and that was very, very clear and is very, very peculiar right up to today. The, the clear distinction of what was happening in India that was transferred to South Africa, but with very, very great changes that were made to create a unique South African identity. And I think as we celebrate 160 years anniversary of the invented labors, we need to understand because the younger people do not understand the hard work and the resilience and the determination and the sacrifices that our indentured laborers made in order to uh, provide. I mean, it is very, very important, like somebody else mentioned, after five years indenture, you could go back uh, to India and that's it. However, that our forefathers, you and I are here today, is because of the wisdom of our forefathers that wanted to remain in South Africa and make this our new home. And our home that had been created by our forefathers is based on that very, very important decision, which I always say as an anthropologist, that was the most very, very greatest decision that was made that changed the history of the South African people of Indian origin. The decision not to go back to India, but remain here and stay and, 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 and find a home for the family and the children. That historical decision was what created the, the foundations for us today in South Africa. Wonderful, Dr. Raj Govinda. Well, you know what? I'm going to have to invite you again onto the show because I'm, I'm not done. I think there's so much more that we need to talk about. So let's keep that conversation going. Okay. Thank you so much. And thank you to the listeners as we celebrate 160 years. Dr. Raj Govinda, the anthropologist. Okay, I've got so much to go through. Some voice notes I see here. Let me go through them quickly before we wrap up. Uh, we've got one. Hello there. Awesome topic. There's just one point I'd like to make. This is Rushila Devi Singh from Phoenix. Um, when our laborers came down in the 1860s, every one of them was slaves. None of them came as saints. That's it. Hmm, yeah, I think that was explained there by Mr. Avi Muhammad Devan with Balstrap. He came down to work as. Um, uh, in, in the sugarcane field, and then uh, through his, you know, work, he was uh, regarded as a, as a saint. He was. He did come through as a indentured labourer. Ian Government on the line. Hello. Good afternoon, Taresh and the team. The arrival of Indians in South Africa and the suffering they endured and the progress they made in their adopted home is close to my heart. I have traced my relatives in India and I visit them every year. Thank you. Thanks so much, Mr. Governor. So much of people with sending through messages. I'm going to go through some of them now. Um, got Denzel Rami of Riverside, Segri Padiachi, Narina, D. Governor, Rani Pale, Ricky Naidu from Phoenix, Rohini, uh, Mala, Freddie Tika from Newcastle, Andre from Phoenix, all sending through, uh, you know, the, their pride about, um, about you know, the, their happiness and joy for this. Uh, listen, we're not going to leave it there. We're still going to be talking about this much more. So you can definitely be rest assured that we will be uh, factoring in your opinion and thoughts as the uh, weeks go by. So this broadcast came away courtesy of the team executive producer Selma Patel and Rachel Vadi. We'll talk to you soon. From me, Tare have an awesome day. DUT is one of the top five universities in South Africa, number 10 in the world for research citations and ranked in the top 500 universities on the planet. It's no wonder that DUT offers you a world-class, internationally recognized education. Applications for 2021 are now open. So apply via the Central Applications Office on cao.ac.za.
Remember, applications close end November and closing dates may vary. So please apply today. Visit dut.ac.ca. DUT, Envision 2030, improving lives and livelihoods. Your favorite shopping expo of Durban, India, InStyle Diwali Shopping Festival is back at Hollywood Bets Kingsmead Stadium from the 30th of October to the 15th of November, 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. daily. Entry is 10 rands a person. Punjabi, saris, kurti tops, footwear, and so much more. Stand a chance to win a TX3 mini TV box worth 3,000 rands every Saturday and a limousine ride worth 3,000 rands every Sunday. Fireworks display on the 13th of November between 7 p.m. and 9 p.m. We have refreshing restaurants and this is the last expo of the festive season. See you there. News break. Lotus FM, powered by SABC News.